Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. If you're like me, you spend a lot of time listening to podcasts. That's right. I don't just host a podcast. I listen to at least three episodes a day of my personal favorites. So if you want to do a little good in the world while you listen, you should check out the new Humbly app. Humbly is a podcatcher that inserts a short ad between episodes you were already going to listen to, then donates the money from that ad to causes you choose. For example, when I listen to an ad on Humbly, the money can go to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, Teach for America, and the NAACP. I can even check my stats to see how much I've earned for my causes overall. So, if you're already interested in listening to podcasts, why not listen to them on Humbly and earn a little money for those in need? A That's Not Gunner Productions podcast. Hi there, and welcome back to Oof! Right in the Childhood, a podcast where I tell you the hit of each of the feature films and then watch them to see how they hold up to modern standards. This week, I'm talking about 1977's The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which is a return to the package films of World War II. Did you miss them? Each time I dive into the films of the Bronze Era, I find that there's less and less information about their production. Really, when you open the Wikipedia article of Snow White, there are paragraphs and paragraphs about the decision-making process and every little detail of the creation of the movie. This movie has two tiny paragraphs. There's no story. It's kind of ironic. If there's one movie from this era that's more iconic than Robin Hood, it's The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. It's literally spawned a whole realm of merchandise, TV shows, and other movies. Luckily, not only does Winnie the Pooh have, pardon the pun, quite the storied history, there's also plenty of Disney Corporation drama going on during this time. In fact, I think this is the longest history portion I've ever written. Alan Alexander Milne was born in London in 1882, and I'm not going to do a full biography on him, but boy are there some interesting factoids on his early life, so I'll just breeze through them. His early schooling days were spent at Henley House School where he studied under H.G. Wells. As a young adult, he played cricket at the amateur level on two teams specifically for young writers. His teammates included J. M. Barry of Peter Pan fame and Arthur Conan Doyle who created Sherlock Holmes. He served as an officer in World War I, first in battle, then, after a nasty case of trench foot, in a top-secret war propaganda unit. Shortly after the war, he was married, and in 1920, his wife gave birth to a son named Christopher Robin. On his first birthday, Alan gave Christopher a teddy bear named Edward. 
Christopher loved the bear and played with it and other stuffed animals constantly. When he started telling his father of the adventures his toys were having, Alan started to write down the stories of Edward Bear. Christopher Robin and Edward had many great adventures until his father took him to the London Zoo where they met a black bear, Winnie. Winnie is a Canadian icon, really. Bring up Winnie the Pooh around any Canadian and like a reflex, they'll say, do you know he's named after a Canadian bear? In 1914, as he was making his way to report to the Canadian Army Veterinary Corps, Lieutenant Harry Colburn purchased a bear cub for $20 at a train stop. I'm unclear if that was in Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars, but that comes somewhere between 450 Canadian and 550 U.S. dollars nowadays. Why did he buy a bear cub? Well, he was a veterinarian, and the assumption is that whomever was selling the baby bear had killed her mother, and he probably assumed that the cub would die without proper care. Colburn named the cub Winnie because he was from Winnipeg and wanted to have a little bit of home with him, and then they went to London together. The bear became the mascot of the veterinary corps, and Colburn planned to send her to a Winnipeg zoo at the end of the war. But for reasons that are unclear, but could probably be summed up that she was a full-grown bear now, he decided to let her stay at the London Zoo, where she met Christopher Robin. After seeing Winnie, Christopher Milne fell in love with her and promptly renamed Edward to Winnie. And in 1926, Alan, using the name A.A. A. Milne, published a collection of stories called Winnie the Pooh, tagging on the name Christopher Robin had given to a swan for reasons, I'm sure. It was quickly followed by Now We Are Six in 1927 and The House at Pooh Corner in 1928. Herein enters Walt Disney, who loved to hear his daughter Diane laugh as she read the Winnie the Pooh books. In 1938, Walt contacted Milne's agent, inquiring upon the rights to Winnie the Pooh so he could make movies about him. The problem was, by 1938, Christopher Robin was 18. He had just graduated secondary school, where he'd been harassed and teased about his name every single day. Alan was furious that his creation was bringing his son so much pain and that it had completely overshadowed the many other books and plays he'd written. In fact, in 1930, he was quoted as saying, I do not want C.R. Milne to ever wish that his name were Charles Robert. He and Christopher Robin were miserable. Christopher felt that his father had rendered his name a simple marketing line and that the child in the books was annoying and nothing like him. He couldn't find a job after graduating from university because employers took one look at his name and wanted to ask about his adventures with Winnie the Pooh. Alan gave up writing altogether because he felt that everything he wrote was seen as whimsical, even when he was trying to be serious. Then he had a stroke in 1952 and died in 1956, never reconciling with his son. I'm not sure to whom the rights passed after Milne's death, but by 1961, Walt Disney had the film rights and in 1964, he announced he was going to make a full-length film based on the Pooh books. Then, after a single meeting, he decided shorts were the way to go. So they started with the first two chapters and made a short called Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. After the critiques of Alice in Wonderland, Walt decided that writing should go to those who had more cavalier attitudes toward the story. He also asked the writers to Americanize the story so that viewers would have an easier time connecting with it. This resulted in the writers adding their own truly American character, Gopher, to the cast. In 1966, they released the featurette with a film called The Ugly Dachshund. Then, after audiences fell in love, they also attached it to The Fighting Prince of Donegal, Lieutenant Robinson Crusoe, and The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin, none of which I have ever heard of. The reception of the featurette was incredibly favorable. 
In a book subtitled A Celebration of the Silly Old Bear, Christopher Finch asserts that even Daphne Milne, Alan's widow, loved the cartoon. Given the public's love of the bear with very little brain, Walt immediately stated that they should make a second Winnie the Pooh short. And then he died. As soon as the studio had recovered from their loss and released the Jungle Book, the team decided that because it's what Walt would have wanted, they should make a sequel to Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. It was the studio's first non-Walt production, the first where he had absolutely no interaction. This time, they adapted four different chapters into Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day and released it in 1968. I don't know who they hired as their hype man for the release of that short, but they somehow got the mayor of Los Angeles to declare October 25th, 1968 as Winnie the Pooh Day. Actors and character costumes were sent to Sears around the U.S. to sell merchandise in person. It was a big frickin' deal. The two shorts were released onto network television in October of 1970, also sponsored by Sears, who was the exclusive Winnie the Pooh retailer and played annually. Finally, in 1974, the studio decided to make a third short called Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2 that focused on the bouncy, gregarious tiger. This short was added to the island at the top of the world, and why have I never heard of any of these live-action movies? Seriously. Then, the studio's world turned upside down again. In 1975, Sony released a new product onto the market called a video cassette recorder, or VCR. It wasn't the first of its kind, but it was marketed to be available to the masses. Sony released the Betamax VCR, advertising that everyone, not just the wealthy, could now record programs off of their television and watch them at any time. The Betamax was about 2300 bucks and included a television, which, while not cheap, allowed families to have a VCR in their household. The inflation calculator I use says that that's the modern equivalent of about $15,300, and after talking to humans who actually own these things, it maybe wasn't that available to everyone. Regardless, Disney and other studios were furious. They saw Betamax as a threat to their very existence. After all, if someone could record a movie off of their TV, why would they ever go to the theater again? And, as more companies made video cassettes that people could rent and play in their homes, Disney started getting worried about its box offices. In 1976, Disney, along with Universal and its music group MCA, sued the Sony Corporation because the Betamax system allowed others to infringe on their copyright. That's right, because other people could record television, Disney decided that Sony was an accessory before the fact to their copyright infringement. In 1977, the California District Court determined that this was not breaking copyright, and Disney appealed the decision. With the opening volley fired, times were changing. Almost as soon as the District Court's decision was rendered, JVC created the VHS tape, and, partnering with 20th Century Fox, the Video Club of America began to sell home movies to the average family. Disney wasn't done with them yet. This particular case is going to come up for the next three movies, but for now... Home video was considered protected under the law. In that same year, Roy E. Disney resigned as an executive of the Disney Corporation, stating that he, quote, just felt creatively the company was not going anywhere interesting. It was very stifling, end quote. He remained on the board of directors for the time being, but he was unhappy with the direction Disney was headed in. And 1977, being a busy year for everyone, saw the release of The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, the only package film to be released after the wartime era. They combined all three of the shorts they'd released previously and added narration to carry the stories from one short to the next. In doing this, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh became the very last full-length animated film to have been personally worked on by Walt Disney. The film was met with critical success, but in a first for any of these films, I can't find a single box office figure for this movie. It seems to have done well, but the best I can find is that 
Through home media sales, which we're going to get into a little bit later, it's made about $5 million by itself, and even that doesn't seem like enough. The Winnie the Pooh property itself is estimated to be worth about $6 billion now. So is it worth the hype today, or like so many of our favorites, does the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh have some moments that don't hold up in modern light? Stay tuned after this quick break, and I'll watch the film and let you know. Questions still linger. Is Dice Tower Theater a high fantasy audio drama with a narrator, or a heroic audiobook with a full cast, sound effects, and original score? Can it be considered an actual play podcast when you never hear the fall of the dice or the conversation at the table? Listen to Dice Tower Theater on your favorite podcasting platform. And no matter what we are called, we hope you enjoy it. This week's cover art was created by Heidi Perez, who has an Etsy shop called Ugly Duckling, where you can own her art, both on canvas and on pens. Really, y'all, she has a Baymax pen for nurses, and you know you need to just go get that for the nurse in your life. I've linked to her shop in the show notes. I'm always looking for more cover art, so if you or someone you know has Disney fan art they'd like to be featured on the show, head over to oofmychildhood.com fanart and fill out the form. Okay, before I get started watching the mini adventure of the Pooh, I'm going to admit that I have a soft spot for this entire Disney property. Also, my sister-in-law is currently decorating my future niece's nursery in Winnie the Pooh, so I'm going to be a little easy on Winnie the Pooh, mostly because I want that little one to grow up with the warm, fuzzy feelings I get when I hear theme song. Given that I haven't watched this movie in like 25 years, I'm really hoping that I don't have to take that back and say, oh no, no, we can't do that. I really, really want to keep loving this. On with the movie. The prologue opens to a live-action set with a poo-stuffed animal on a bookcase, then pans around the room as the instrumentals the theme song play. Among other toys is a cricket bat and a gun, because this is the 70s and the best way for an American kiddo to feel connected is through a cricket bat. The narrator introduces the room of Christopher Robin and opens a book to the animated map of the Hundred Acre Woods and the full theme song. Look, Alan Menken had some amazing music in the Disney Renaissance, but this song, the fact that it's been stuck in my head for three weeks since I realized I was doing Winnie the Pooh, tells me how good of songwriters the Sherman Brothers were. Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree I never did understand why he lives under the name Sanders. The Pooh-Koo clock has gone off, but Pooh is a bear of very little brain, so he doesn't remember he needs to exercise. Note that he's not exercising for health or to lose weight. Pooh exercises to improve his appetite. I am soft, fat, and proud of that. Well, that's a nice change from the fat phobia of Robin Hood. Unfortunately, Pooh is out of honey and gets his face stuck in a honey pot. A bee comes in and leads him to a honey tree, which he promptly climbs while singing the Rumbly in My Tumbly song. We are three songs into this movie, and I have only remembered one. He reaches the hollow of the tree, gets stung, and falls into a bramble patch. Because he's a stuffed animal, he doesn't die. When he gets up, he thinks of Christopher Robin, who is nailing the tail back onto Eeyore, the saddest donkey. Everyone weighs in on Eeyore's tail placement except for Eeyore. Then Pooh wanders up, looks at Christopher Robin's balloon, and asks if he has a balloon. 
The balloon floats Pooh, and he has Christopher take him to the mud pit so he can become a little black rain cloud. When do we get out of the time frame when characters keep dyeing themselves black? Pooh sings a song about being a rain cloud that I do remember, but the bees are not tricked. He stuffs a handful of honey and bees in his mouth, and after that, angers the bees. He suggests Christopher Robin put up an umbrella and pretend like it's raining. I don't think Christopher Robin had that umbrella in the preceding scene, but oh well. Honey rhymes with funny, which rhymes with rabbit. Of course. Pooh will pop in on rabbit for lunch, but rabbit tries to pretend like he's not home. Playing Odysseus and the Cyclops, they play the Who's Nobody game. Rabbit asks Pooh if he'll have condensed milk or honey on his bread. Pooh says both, but hold the bread. I guess he doesn't want solid carbs under his liquid carbs. After Pooh eats all of Rabbit's honey, he tries to leave and gets stuck in the door. Rabbit runs off to get Christopher Robin, and Al shows up to observe that he's stuck. Gopher appears as soon as they say they need an expert. He'll get Pooh out with some boards for bracing, seven sticks of dynamite, and two days. Then, after refusing to give Al an estimate, disappears. Christopher Robin says they'll just have to wait for Pooh to get thin again. Rabbit proceeds to do interior decorating with Pooh's bottom, first as a table for a flower pot, then with branches and a face for a hunting trophy. Rue gives Pooh flowers that make him sneeze and destroy Rabbit's interior decor. Pooh stays in the hole for days and nights. One night, as he's keeping Rabbit awake with his snoring, Guffer appears with a lunchbox of summer squash, grapes, and honey. Rabbit hears Pooh say the word honey and screams his way out of his house, which, by the way, has a much larger door out the trees, so why would you have the large bear go out the little hole? Pooh says, I wasn't going to eat it, I was just going to taste it. One day, Pooh's bottom budges, and his friends hold a parade to pull him out. They send him flying across the pages of the book, where he gets stuck in the knot of a tree that's full of honey. One of the things I remember most of this from when I was a kid was how much they acknowledged that this was a book. Like, everything other than the Aristocats and the previous package films start out with a book to open the story. These shorts are a book. There are words on the pages and constant references to what page they're on. Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day one fine day, the east wind traded places with the west wind, so Pooh decided to go to his thoughtful spot. It's so windy the words are blown off the page. He gets to his log and sits there and just says, think, 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 trying to decide what to think about. Gopher shows up and says he should get out because it's Wednesday. Pooh thinks that's punny, so he goes off to wish everyone a good Wednesday. Piglet lives in a tree with his grandfather's name out front. It's a sign that says Trespassers Will, which Piglet says is short for Trespassers William. The wind sweeps Piglet off the ground and his scarf unravels, making him into a kite. As Pooh tries to keep hold, he destroys Eeyore's house and harvests all of Rabbit's carrots. They get blown into Owl's window. Owl seems to have not noticed that it's blustery, even though the house is rocking like a boat. Owl proceeds to tell them a very weird story about his cousin the Screech Owl, who was an opera singer, who played the glockenspiel and laid a seagull egg by mistake somehow. This is punctuated by the wind blowing the tree down and destroying his house. Eeyore says he'll find Owl a new house, while Owl tells them about Uncle Clyde, who fell in love with a pussycat on a pea-green boat. That night, the wind sounds scary, so Pooh has a gun at the foot of his bed, because guns play a larger part in Winnie the Pooh than I remembered. I mean, this is a court gun, but it's still a gun. Pooh, being a very little brain, decides to invite the sound inside. He's pounced on by a Tigger. Tigger sings a song about who he is after being asked. He says he's the only Tigger, which Pooh points to the mirror and says, what about that? 
Apparently, Tigger doesn't know what a reflection is and says he's hungry for honey, but then he says he hates honey. That's only for heffalumps and woozles. There's this whole bit where Pooh talks to his reflection like it's real, but in the first scene, he knew what a mural was? Exhausted from keeping guard, Pooh falls asleep and has the most acid trip dream sequence since Dumbo. I'd put some money that this was inspired by that. On the whole, it's not more scary than Pink Elephants on Parade, but it definitely has its moments, and I remember being unnerved by it when I was a kid. One of the heffalumps shoots Pooh out of his own gun, and he gets shot out of a cannon. The thunder wakes Pooh, and it's raining all over the hundred-acre wood. The rain floods Piglet's tree, and he writes a message in a bottle, asking for help before he floats out of the house in a chair. Pooh's rescued his ten pots of honey, then gets distracted and falls into the flooded forest. The animals are gathering at Christopher Robin's house, except Eeyore, who's looking for a house for Owl. Look, I know Eeyore is mopey, but he is definitely a good friend. Rue finds Piglet's message in a bottle and sends Owl out to save him. Owl finds them and tells them a boring story while Pooh and Piglet go off a waterfall. After Pooh and Piglet are rescued, Christopher Robin gives Pooh credit for rescuing Piglet and throws him a hero party. Eeyore interrupts them by saying he's found Owl a house. He leads the group to Piglet's house, and no one will tell Eeyore that he's just given away another person's home, so Piglet gives his house to Owl, and Pooh insists that Piglet will live with him. So they throw Pooh a party for not actually saving Piglet, and Piglet a party for giving away his home. Winnie the Pooh and Tigger too. In the next chapter, Pooh is in his thinking spot again when Tigger bounces him over. Tigger seems to have the memory of the proverbial goldfish. He has to introduce himself to people every single time, like they've never seen him. TTFN, ta-ta for now. Tigger is the beginning of text speak. He bounces into Rabbit's garden and destroys it, so Rabbit holds a protest meeting to figure out how to unbounce Tigger. Pooh's passed out from boredom. Rabbit decides to take Tigger out to the woods and abandon him so that when they find him again, he'll be an unbounced Tigger. So the next day, they take Tigger out to the woods, then disappear through a log to hide from Tigger. He realizes the other three are gone and decides they're lost. They hurry home as he bounces in the other direction. But at the bottom of page 123, they realize they are lost. Pooh's not smart enough to realize that they're going in circles. Rather, he thinks that the sand pit is following them. It's funny. Pooh says he's a bear of very little brain, but he has some deep thoughts. For example, because they keep finding the same sand pit when they look for home, they should look for the sand pit and they might find home. Pooh decides that he's going to follow his stomach home because his honey pots have been calling to him. Just as they leave the forest, Tigger bounces them over. They say Rabbit's lost in the forest, so Tigger bounces into the mist to find him. Meanwhile, lost in the woods, Rabbit is having a complete breakdown. He's freaking out over every single sound. A thing that, even to me, a child with anxiety, did not make any sense. As he reaches the peak of terror, Tigger bounces him out of the forest. The next chapter has snow blanketing the hundred acre. Tigger has come to take Rue out bouncing because who's a better bouncing tutor than Tigger? As they bounce out into the snow, we see Rabbit ice skating. Rue asks if Tiggers can ice skate, and of course that's what Tiggers do best. He thinks it's easy to start, then goes too fast and bowls Rabbit into his house, destroying it. He then declares that Tiggers don't like ice skating, which is a very common ADHD trait. Like, if it's hard to do something that you don't just, like, pick up, you, you just hate it. Tigger and Rue decide to bounce up a tree, and he bounces to the very tippy top. Rue is living his best life, but Tigger is frightened from the height, so they're stuck in the tree. Down on the ground, Pooh is tracking something in the snow that he doesn't know what it was. He was tracking a single set of paw marks until Piglet joins him, then he's tracking two sets. 
Their activity of tracking themselves is interrupted by a halloo from the tree. It must be a jaguar. They hide in the trees and pounce when you look up. Rue reveals that Tigger's stuck, but he's totes cool 50 feet off the ground. Kanga is very worried about Tigger, but Rabbit's thrilled that Tigger's being traumatized by being too high because he can't bounce people. They try to rescue him, but he's terrified. He promises never to bounce again if he can get down, to which Rabbit celebrates. The narrator helps Tigger out of the tree by tipping the book to the side and letting him slide down the paragraphs. Tigger's so thrilled that he can bounce again, but Rabbit, the tyrant, tells him he's never allowed to do the thing that brings him joy again. Tigger walks off sadly, having his favorite thing taken oof, right in the childhood. Poor Tigger. The others are saddened by sad Tigger and eventually get Rabbit to agree to let people enjoy things. As soon as Rabbit says Tigger can bounce again, he shows Rabbit that his feet are meant for bouncing as well. And now we're at the end of the book where Winnie the Pooh has to say goodbye to Christopher Robin as he's going off to school to learn math and English and geography. Pooh and Christopher Robin wander through the wood talking about doing nothing. Christopher asks Pooh to never forget him. They have a beautiful day together before a six-year-old is shipped off to a school to never play with stuffed animals again. Isn't that just thrilling? So, like I said, I went into the mini-adventures of Winnie the Pooh with the intention of being gentle. But it really isn't that hard. Yes, Owl is full of himself and Rabbit's judgy, but the Winnie the Pooh characters have stood the test of time because they're deeply wholesome. The kind of characters you really want your kids growing up loving. There's just nothing wrong with them. That said, I have a pet theory that all of the animals are some form of psychological diagnosis, and I can't be the only one that sees it. Pooh has an eating disorder. Piglet has anxiety. Tigger, ADHD. Eeyore, depression. Owl is a narcissist, and Rabbit, with his obsession with making sure things are just right, has some OCD. I'm sure there are things to apply to Kanga and Rue, but in this film they get very little screen time, so it's kind of hard to tell. If you can think what they might be, hit me up on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under Oof My Childhood. If you'd like to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, those ratings and reviews affect almost every other podcatcher. If the app you're using right now has a rating system, please consider rating and reviewing there as well. I also have a Patreon page where you can contribute monetarily to the podcast. For just a dollar every month, you get an ad-free version of the regular episodes one day early. And for $5 a month, you get a bonus episode that discusses the history and commentary of other childhood favorites. This month, I'm talking about Ridley Scott's 1985 film Legend, starring Tom Cruise, Tim Curry, and a lot of dark themes. Patrons also get a say in what bonus episodes I'm making for the future, so if you want more of my rabbit hole research, that's the place to go. I also have single bonus episodes available at oofmychildhood.com if you don't want to commit to a monthly subscription. You can also find mugs, aprons, and t-shirts on the website. My theme music was composed and played by Sean Rudolph of Let Music Be. For more information on that studio, you can visit their website at letmusic.be or check the show notes for an easy link. You can find transcripts for each movie episode on my website, and if you check out my YouTube channel, I have captioned video versions of each episode as they're published. I do my best to provide YouTube videos and transcripts at the same time as each podcast episode is released, but if this one isn't up yet, you can always check on my website for an update and a link to the appropriate video. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you come back each week to discuss Disney through modern eyes. This episode was written, recorded, and produced by me. I release a new episode every Monday through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many, many other podcatchers. 
So until next time, keep the magic alive. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.